regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, uh, welcome to a new episode of Datacast and today I uh, am a pleasure to have uh, Dr. Leonard Apelsin um, on the call. Uh, he is a research fellow at the Berkeley Institute for Data Science. He holds a PhD in uh, Biomedical Informatics from uh, University of California, San Francisco, as well as a bachelor degree in Biology and Computer Science from Carnegie Mellon. Uh, He was a senior data scientist and engineering lead at Premier AI, which is a machine learning company that specializes in using advanced uh, natural language processing techniques to analyze uh, terabytes of unstructured text data. As a founding team member, uh, Leonard has expanded the Premier AI team from four employees to over 80 people. Outside data science and machine learning, uh, Leonard enjoys scuba diving, salsa dancing, and making short documentary films um, so, uh, Leonard, glad to have you on the show. Hey, glad to be here. Great. So, um, so you you study biology and computer science from Carnegie Mellon. Could you uh, mind quickly going over your undergrad experience? Yeah. So, I had a when I started Carnegie Mellon, my intent was to study math. But earlier that year, the human genome had just been sequenced. I thought it was an amazing opportunity because you had all these biologists who thought qualitatively, they're used to looking through microscopes, but they're not used to crunching so much data. Then you have all these computer scientists that have the ability to crunch data, but don't know the fleshy biology and the biological processes required to understand what's going on. So I decided to kind of straddle that boundary by uh, switching my major to biology and computer science, which seemed intimidating by at first, and don't get me wrong, it wasn't exactly a breeze, but I quickly realized that uh, by double majoring, I was actually having an easier time of it than my uh, uh, fellow classmates in the computer science department because I was taking twice as many courses, but a lot of the courses were introductory and intermediate biology and computer science electives, so I didn't have to take uh, the really murderous electives mm-hmm. such as operating system uh, design and overall it was a very satisfying and intellectually invigorating experience let's see um in your opinion like what what do you think is like the some of the um you know common teams between biology and cs you know what what can what do you think these two disciplines um are different from each other as well as familiar to each other well our bodies 
are programmed to do certain things. Our DNA uh, sequences are actually are actually programming instructions that are compiled by complex mechanisms in our body to create proteins which carry out structure and function. There is rigorous encoding within our cells which regulates how proteins are produced and uh, disposed of. Our body is this vast computational machine. And once you have the measurements involved, it's all about reverse engineering computation. So I see biology and computer science as sort of two flip sides of the same coin, mm -hmm. where in computer science, we know how the computing mechanisms work, whereas in biology, we have all the data and we're trying to reverse engineer the computing mechanisms. And once we are reverse engineering the computing mechanisms, we can manipulate the computation using uh, uh, drug discovery tools and whatnot to get our body to do what we want it to do. I see. And that's kind of related well to the next point. So you, you decided to uh, pursue a PhD in um, bioinformatics at uh, UCSF right after you finished your undergrad. So what, what is the, the main motivation behind this decision? Okay, so I knew going out of uh, my undergrad experience that I wanted to immerse myself in science for at least a couple of years, particularly in the genetics and bioinformatics uh, space. It was a matter of deciding where I wanted to go to grad school. Uh, tangential to that, I also wanted to be part of the entrepreneurial zeitgeist that was uh, happening in the mid-aughts at this time. I wanted to expose myself to startups and startup cultures. So the best place to do that seemed to be Silicon Valley and San Francisco, uh, which is why I wanted to go to either Stanford or University of California, San Francisco, which has one of the top tier uh, biomedical informatics programs in the country. I chose uh, San Francisco because of the, you know, the beautiful and vibrant uh, city because of the talent of the professors at UCSF and uh, also because uh, Silicon Valley and the startup world was right next door so I could you know find ways to become a part of that culture as well. I see and uh, your PhD research focus on finding hidden patterns in genetically linked disease. Can you describe that in more detail? Yeah, so uh, what's so fascinating and so frustrating about genetics is that we have all the information. We have so much information. We just don't know what it means because on a simple level, a gene is just a one-dimensional uh, sequence of uh, characters, instructions to how to create a three-dimensional protein that has a shape. It could be shaped like a horseshoe or a fist. And that shape performs some sort of function by interacting with other proteins or molecules or whatnot. Now, for human beings and for most organisms, we know what the one-dimensional sequences are. But in more than 90% of the cases, we don't know what the protein shape is. We don't know what its function is. So it's basically uh, a semi-supervised learning problem where you have millions of data points, but only a small subset of them are labeled. And how do you leverage the rest of the data to figure out what the unlabeled data points mean and represent? So I began to tackle uh, this issue in my research from a theoretic standpoint, and I tried techniques like unsupervised clustering and similarity network topology analysis. And I came up with a way of uh, predicting uh, insightful patterns in these sequences using uh, semi-supervised learning techniques. I began to apply these predictions to a practical problem. 
uh, problems in immuno immunology and particularly in immune diseases like multiple sclerosis. Like at multiple sclerosis is a disease of the immune system where your immune system goes hay haywire. Uh, the immune proteins begin attacking the protective layer within your neurons and nobody knows why or how this is happening. So I applied some of my topological techniques to over 9 million immunosequences uh, from over nearly 100 individuals, half were multiple sclerosis patients, half were uh, healthy controls. And using these theoretical techniques, I discovered a pattern that is only present in the, the uh, sequences of uh, multiple sclerosis patients to a statistically significant degree that's not present in any of the healthy controls. And that genetic pattern can be extracted from a patient's blood. So it's my sincere hope that one day uh, this discovery will be used to uh, create a blood-based test for early onset detection of multiple sclerosis. I actually just read about self-supervised learning yesterday from an article, and I think it's, it's really um, a prominent, I guess, like up and coming approach to, to take advantage of like mostly unlabeled data and without, um, you know, having to um, require some effort to actually manually uh, doing data lab labeling, which is a very uh, time consuming and require a lot of human labor. Yeah. So, so you mentioned a little bit about like, you know, topological analysis and so for like a protein network data set. This is like something that, uh, you know, not very familiar with a lot of people who inter who you know want to get into data science. So uh, I'm just kind of curious. Can you recommend a couple of uh, general um, guides or resources for people who are maybe interested in sort of like you know topological analysis and and, and for and network analysis in in general? Yeah. So uh, uh, what's surprising to me, uh, despite the focus on clustering as kind of foundation of data science. Uh, no one really talks about these powerful network clustering uh, techniques. Highly suggest uh, that uh, you take a look at the Lovane algorithm, uh, which is well known, but not as well known as it should be. It's incorporated into uh, the Network X Python data science package. But oh, and also uh, my personal favorite, the MCL algorithm or the Markov clustering algorithm. Uh, now, what these algorithms do is they take a network structure and they find the clicks or clumps of data points within the network structure. Uh, so, for instance, and I've tried this personally, you take a if you take your network of uh, Facebook friends and you cluster it, you will see the different friend groups uh, fall into distinct clicks or clusters within that network uh, uh, topology. Lovain does this really well, MCL does this well. You can basically detect all your Facebook friends and their various clicks in an unsupervised uh, manner. Uh, this technique applies to many areas beyond social network analysis, particularly uh, similarity matrix analysis. So imagine, uh, like in my research, I apply this technique to all bio matrix of protein similarities, but you can also apply it to, let's say, an all bio matrix of uh, news articles, document texts. Mm -hmm. And you'll be able to cluster, you basically take the matrix, a matrix is just a network, you turn it into a network. You cluster uh, the network using Lovain or MCL. You get all the topic clusters from the network in completely unsupervised manner. You don't need to specify K like in K-means. You don't need to specify uh, kind of like weird uh, uh, density thresholds like in DBSCAN. The clusters just pop out. And then you can take it up a notch and you can ask yourself, what does it mean for two clusters to be adjacent to each other? What does it mean for... Uh, 
uh, a cluster that's about oil and a cluster that's about more to be adjacent to each other in the network. They share something in common. There's topological overlap, which means there's uh, topic overlap. Hmm. And uh, by basically passing information back and forth across this topology, you can really draw insights from clusters, uh, even without necessarily having to look and examine all the data points individually in these clusters. And these uh, approaches, uh, work really well in unsupervised learning because, I mean, let me rephrase that. Uh, these approaches work really well in semi-supervised learning because once you have the clusters, you can intelligently select which subset of data points across the clusters you will label. And then you can pass uh, label information across the topology, you spread it in order to more intelligently guess the labels for uh, the unlabeled points in your data set. Very interesting. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of um, potential vast application of this um, this approach in in both uh, academic and industry data sets. So I'm uh, I'll be sure to include some of those resources and links that you mentioned uh, in the show notes so people can uh, have a chance to take a look at those. Yeah, that's great. Um, and so um, during your PhD, you also started a data science consultancy with a variety of startups uh, as your clients. So uh, what, what is the backstory behind this and what could be your advice for people who want to do the same? Okay, so San Francisco, as a lot of people know, is a very expensive place and I was living close to downtown so I had to make find a way to uh, pay the rent and also save up some money to pay off my student loans. At the same time, as I mentioned earlier, my intent in moving out to the Bay Area was to uh, familiarize myself with the startup world. So about uh, a year into my PhD program, I started looking through startup job postings online and I began to just cold email uh, the recruiting managers with the following preposition. So I basically call them up and say, hey, look guys, uh, you seem to be doing really interesting work and I'm sure you have plenty of really talented engineers that are great at optimizing servers and operating uh, systems. But I have come from a unique background where I'm really good at finding patterns in data, needles and haystacks. Uh, do you happen to need somebody like that to advise you on data science, uh, da uh, data-driven problems? Like what you have to realize is that in those days, data science wasn't quite a thing. You had analysts and you had engineers that were more data-driven in their thinking, but there was this unmet need in a lot of companies to have somebody tackle hard and uncertain problems. So at the very least, I would cold email uh, these hiring managers and they would want to meet with me nine out of 10 times, if only to satisfy uh, their curiosity, who is the strange grad student and why is he reaching out to me? So I would arrange for meetings with the hiring managers. Uh, we would spend an hour or two talking about the types of data-driven problems that the startups uh, had that hadn't been addressed that they did not have their resources to address and sooner or later I would uh, eventually sign a uh, contract with uh, these uh, companies and uh, let me tell you it was terrific in all honesty I learned more as a data science consultant than I did in my grad, grad school work I got exposed to some of the hardest like problems imaginable uh, for me at the time anyway, because remember, these were problems that the companies couldn't solve internally, which is why they were willing to give me a 
uh, a chance. Uh, my PI, my grad school principal investigator, like hated what I was doing, but mm-hmm. from an educational perspective, I think it was uh, invaluable, and it basically made me the data scientist that I am today. And my advice to grad students who have the time on their hands uh, is to just try it. Just cold email people mm-hmm. on LinkedIn and or on Indeed or whatever hiring website you're looking at, and you will be surprised. They will get back to you most of the time. Yeah, that, thanks for thanks for sharing that uh, that anecdote. Yeah, I'm just curious, like like you you kind of have to balance between doing research for your PhD and at the same time kind of work on a variety of um, these consulting projects. So, uh, well, first, like how do you um you know what how, how wish maybe recall back to your time like how do you balance between prioritizing you know different projects uh, for for both your research and and these consulting. Uh, initiatives okay so uh what one has to realize is that in phd work in particular there are periods of fierce activity and there are lulls lulls usually happen when you uh, uh during the uh, editing stage of uh, papers so i'm working on a paper and i complete the paper quickly and then i send the paper to one of my co-authors and i need to wait a week or two for the co-author to get back with me to uh, get back to me with edits so i address those edits and send it out to a co-author again and eventually we send it out to the reviewers and you have to wait three weeks for the reviewers to get uh, back so part of the data science consultancy was trying to optimize work activity, heavy work activity, uh, to correspond uh, with these lulls, which is a time management technique. But if Mm -hmm. you're able to more or less predict in your schedule how long each year will take to get back to you and, you know, in advance which papers you will write and when, it's totally doable. Yeah, that's that's a great um, great advice. So what were some of the interesting projects that you work on for for your, uh, you know, consultancy uh, initiatives? Oh, so I got exposed to a bunch of great projects. I remember one of the projects I took on earlier on was for this uh, startup called Attributor, and they were interested in detecting plagiarism online, aka when somebody copies and pastes a, let's say, a popular blog post in order to make money of the con, illegally make money of the content of the uh, blog post. So uh, my uh, consulting job was to help tweak and optimize attributors' uh, plagiarism detection algorithms. And plagiarism can, back in those days, was pretty hard to detect because what these uh, uh, people would do is they would edit the text just enough for it to seem like they wrote it themselves when really they were stealing other people's work. And this was basically my first introduction to serious natural language processing. And um, it uh, basically helped me develop a lifelong interest in the natural language processing space. Uh, But the projects were very diverse. This other time I was consulting for a company that was interested in missing insurance bills, aka uh, when you go to the doctor and you get medical billing and uh, they put it down all the procedures that the patient is being billed for, uh, but they forget to add one or two procedures. Now, this seems like a boring problem, but it was actually quite fascinating. And here is why, because in the insurance billing space, precision has to be 100% right. Like if your Netflix recommendation algorithm uh, recommends the wrong movie 5% of the time, it's fine, you can live with that. But if 
patients are being billed incorrectly uh, with false charges 5% of the time. This is a really serious issue. Uh, so how do you achieve 100% precision in a world that's no, frankly, imprecise. Well, I wound up exploring this a little known esoteric area of machine learning called associative rule learning, mm -hmm. which is a dominating space because uh, the purpose of these associative rule learning techniques is to mine data in such a way as to discover simple interpretable rules that make you uh, help you make predictions. So if a patient has procedure A and is built for procedures B and C, we can create a rule that knows with 100% precision that procedure E needs to be on the bill. And the beauty of these interpretable rules is then you have, can have a nurse or clinician or medical professional uh, read the rule by hand and go, yes, this rule works 100% of the time. That's how you achieve uh, precision. And I really took that experience to uh, heart which is why I currently believe that even the most complex black box like neural network learning models should be made as interpretable as possible because there's huge value in interpretability and creating interpretable models is a strong interest of mine. Yeah, that trend of like, you know, uh, even this conference on like fairness and machine learning interpretability um, that, that I've been following for a while. So it seems like that's definitely one of the trends creating explainable models for, for both, um, you know, academic and industry projects. Kind of side note on what you just mentioned, Um, this is actually, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, I guess just in general about learning new things. So obviously, like, you work on a variety of different projects for different different clients, right? So not pro all projects are going to be the same. And so one of the things that I, I imagine you have to do is actually quickly you know, learn the, the different algorithms or, or probably like whatever the business problem that they, uh, that your clients presented you. Uh, and uh, probably during that time, there's not a lot of resources online, you know, on, about data science, you know, like, like, like these days. So how did you speed up your, your learning process with like, you know, new materials and how did you get up to speed with whatever the, the, the problem that, that you have to work on? Honestly, yeah, you're right. There weren't that many uh, of data science books. There wasn't that much noise, which in some ways was actually a good thing. Uh, the way I sped myself up was I would try to like leverage my network, my friends that were mathematicians or sometimes physicists or computer scientists. I would reach up, out to them and say, hey, have you ever tackled something uh uh, something similar. I would ask people for advice, and also I would go to the library. Uh, uh, back then, there were there were like uh, uh, 40, 30 books in the technical department uh, of the library, and I would flip through them. Most of the information was irrelevant, but occasionally I would come across something that uh, just seems uh, seemed incredibly incredibly useful. So. Uh, it was actually a relief not to be kind of overwhelmed with uh, all these uh, resources. And it, paradoxically enough, it allowed me to kind of like ferret out what was useful and what was not for myself. You know, after your PhD, you uh, worked with a string of different companies, including Acritpout, Quit, and Stridehout. So can you comment on uh, your experience working at these startups? Uh, again, it was invigorating in terms of uh, kind of the various problems that I got to uh, tackle, data-driven problems. I also learned a lot about startup culture, both the good and the bad, and I learned how intense uh, 
the swings can be in the startup environment. Some, uh, sometimes I remember Creative uh, uh, Health, uh, we had uh, this very fancy offsite where we were drinking $200 craft beers. And then straight afterwards, we ha- had to complete this major project where it just worked through it uh, two weeks straight, nothing but work, very little sleep. The project is complete. I go into the office to present it. My uh, manager is standing there stone-faced. He's like, take a seat. It turns out that Creative is on the verge of bankruptcy and the entire San Francisco office has been liquidated. All that work for nothing, we're uh, all out of the job. Uh, the very yeah, the very next day, the very next day, I uh, see a job posting for Stride Health. I give them a ping. I have an interview scheduled later this afternoon. Uh, that afternoon, I got the job. So uh, the swings can be uh, can be harsh, but it's part of the game. Like uh, something similar at Quid. Well, this one time, he had a very fancy offsite. Uh, a week later, the CEO was fired by the board of directors. He gives a little speech. He's crying. It's very intense. Uh, the managers are trying to assure us that everything is fine. Two weeks later, a fourth of the company has been laid off. Uh, uh, I'm fine, but it's a very unnerving experience. And I have to say, Quid is still around, and they're doing pretty well. So, uh, look, these swings happen. It's part of the game. It's part of the high-risk, high-reward startup environment. But mm-hmm. if you know what you're doing and you're willing to accept that these swings happen, you're going to be fine. Uh, you're going to get the next job. Just be sure to look for warning signs. If something is fishy at whatever startup you're a part of, mm-hmm. uh, it's probably not just you. There's something going on. So uh, it might be a good time to consider your next career move. Great, great. Yeah, thanks for sharing those uh you know, hard-earned lesson um, about the startup culture, especially, you know, in the SF, you know, when everyone's talking about startups, then obviously, you know, uh, there will be the good and the bad. So um, it seems like you you can figure out some of the cons early on in your career that, that could be great. Um, and so in, in early 2015, you were asked to be a founding team member of Premier AI, a startup yeah. that apply a state-of-the-art NLP techniques to be machines that read and write. For the listeners who are not familiar with it, can you provide a glimpse about um, the, the organization as well as some of the core products? Okay, so uh, one of the, the, the core product we offer is uh, uh, a machine learning pipeline that can take as input uh, thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of unstructured text documents. These uh, unstructured text documents can be anything, newspaper articles, legal contracts, emails, scientific papers, you name it. Uh, The documents go in and out comes an interactive uh, summarized report highlighting uh, all the key information about those documents, the key events, people, quotes, you name it, with a classification layer built in for certain clients. So, for instance, if a client is interested in uh, oil prices, uh, you have, might have a classifier that measures uh, uh, like unexpected old price events within the new space or or whatnot, and uh, we provide that information to uh, to the client so they can make better uh, decisions about uh, you know within their own organizations. And and can you uh, talk a bit about sort of the, uh, the 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 founding story? I think I. I I heard about Premier AI before. Uh, I think I watched a TED talk from Sean Gully, the, the yeah, founder. Yeah. So, but you can you, you can elaborate a little bit on, you know, the story the story behind you know finding the company and all that. 
So yeah, so uh, I met Sean Gorley at Quid. He was a CTO of Quid at the time. And uh, Quid focused on document visualization. You would take a bunch of documents and you would create a network topology using some of the techniques that I briefly mentioned earlier. And then you would be able to visualize the topic clusters of documents within the network. And the visualizations were really cool and you could interact with them, but there was only so much you can do. So uh, Sean got to thinking, hey, what ha would happen if these uh, networks could explain themselves, if they could describe to you why certain document clusters were significant and why others were not. Uh, these, I, uh, this, I, these ideas were rejected by uh, Quid CEO and Quid's board. So uh, Sean uh, decided to start his own company, Primer. Uh, I and I was asked to be the very first employee of Primer. Along later on, uh, uh, two more, uh, two of my uh, colleagues, uh, Amy and Emmanuel, uh, joined me. Uh, at this point. Uh, Primer was nothing but a sketch on a napkin. Like we got the money for it. Okay, we got at this point. Primer was nothing but a sketch on a napkin. Uh, we had investors that were promising us money, but the money hadn't come in yet. So basically, Sean told me, like, look, just we need to write some code. Uh, we're not a company yet, but we'll be in a month or two. Just like this will be great. So uh, I wound up not continuing at Quid. I in, it was in December of 2014. Primer is not a company yet, but we need to start working on the product. So it's just me in my Berkeley kitchen, like writing uh, what became was basically like Primer's like first lines of code, thinking to myself, "What the hell am I doing? If this thing falls through, I'll have like no money. I'll have no insurance, uh, no nothing." Uh, in the uh, in January of uh, 2015, the money came through. Uh, uh, the two additional primer uh, founding team members uh, joined the team. We got a real office. Well, it wasn't a real office. It was a co-working space with 30 other people. It all seemed really shady. Frankly, I didn't know if the company would uh, would last over the next three or four months. But uh, yeah, it wound up lasting and it went up growing from just the four of us to over 80 people now. So it was quite an exciting journey. Yeah, so, so throughout that, um that growing phase, you um, uh, a senior data scientist and engineering lead at Primer, and in fact, you led some of the research effort to develop novel algorithms and make sure that they scale across some of the language other than English. So what were some of the biggest challenges to uh, execute that? Uh, yeah, there were so many fascinating problems on so many levels. So we wanted to expand beyond the English for our clients to include languages such as Russian, Chinese, and Arabic. And every language has its own nuances that breaks your standard assumptions when you uh, within the English pipeline. So, for instance, uh, one of the simplest things you can do with a piece of text is to break that text up into individual words using spacing between those words. Well, uh, the Chinese language does not have spaces between words. You have to 
figure out the words based on the context of the string of Chinese characters as you're reading the text. So that basic assumption flies out the window. You might have another algorithm that has a basic assumption which states that uh, information earlier on in the document is more important or more cohesive to summarizing the content of the document. And so information on the left side of the document, uh, upper left portion of the document is more important. Well, uh, in Arabic, you don't uh, read from left to right, you read from right to left. So that assumption goes out the window, which means you have to, for each individual language, you have to break down your algorithms and figure out what assumptions are false and what assumptions can be replaced. Uh, the other issue is included lack of coherent uh, NLP packages for some of the languages. English, everybody's working on English. There's some terrific packages such as Spacey in Python. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, Russian has no Spacey equivalent. Mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, trying to build out the Russian product and I spent nights scouring Russian uh, language, na natural language processing message boards, finding nothing. Eventually, I managed to build my own solution from scratch and it worked. Uh, it actually worked remarkably well, uh, which I was proud of. Uh, once you figure out how to uh, translate the algorithms and the parameters, then the real work begins because from an infrastructural perspective, you can't just have four versions of the product. You can't copy and paste your code base four times. It's very inefficient. So you have to restructure your code in such a way that uh, that across language algorithms which share certain parameters and functionalities are shared across the code base. This leads to so many uh, issues in regards to uh, uh, to their system crashing, because unless you have very, very rigorous testing, very rigorous unit tests in, in place, you're gonna have new hires, new data scientists going in and maybe sh uh, shifting a seemingly harmless parameter within the English language version of the product, though in no way affects anything else English related. And all of a sudden it breaks one or maybe all of the other non-English languages. So rigorous testing practices are paramount if you're going to scale uh, your algorithms uh, across more than one uh, language in your system. I don't think that, you know, unit testing has been really emphasized, at least like from your reading, like talking to other people and, and reading on like your priority, you know, for, for, for data science at scale yet. So I think I'm glad that you mentioned the, uh, the, the importance of doing so. Um, if they want to scale the algorithms uh, for for a different solution, and um, yeah, so let's let's take a little a bit deeper on on your first part that you just talked about. You also wrote a, a technical article called Russian NLP on Premier's blog, and so uh, in that piece, you know, with some of the very detailed experiment on on Russian words, you concluded that some language models should not be blindly trained on input data without first taking all the nuances of that language into account. So, uh, would you mind uh, un unpacking this article? Okay, yeah. So, uh, this article came about from my own personal experience. At this time, I was uh, trying to translate one of our uh, English uh, classifiers into Russian. And the English classifier used uh, a simple uh, word embeddings to make uh, its predictions. So, I needed analogous word embeddings. In Russian, in order to get, get this classifier to work in that language, and around this time, uh, Facebook uh, 
uh, makes this grand announcement that they have uh, automatically trained word embeddings for over 200 languages. And this is all over all the tech press. It's in TechCrunch, it's on Hacker News. It's it's like a big deal. So I decided to give uh, their uh, word embedding, Russian word embeddings, a, a chance. And the Russian word embeddings, their Russian word embeddings are pure junk. And when I started exploring uh, the nature of these embeddings, I quickly figured out uh, why. See, the English language has uh, articles like the word the and words like to, to kind of like distinguish the grammatical context between words. So you know that the police refers to a noun and to police refers to a verb. Uh, these types of uh, modifier words are missing from Russian because Russian is a suffix heavy language. Whenever you want to emphasize the grammatical nuance of a word, you basically attach a little suffix to the word words ending, which means in Russian, there is no one single word for police. There is 10 different versions of the word police that varies depending on whether the word is being used as a noun or a verb or whatnot. And this applies to most of Russian vocabulary. There is like 10 different versions of every single individual Russian word. Uh, now, if you don't know this going in and you train your uh, Russian word embedding model blindly like Facebook did, then you're going to get 10 different word vectors for every single word. And all those 10 different word vectors are going to be uh, junk. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I basically exposed this in my uh, uh, article. I compared uh, Facebook's model to the English language model to a Russian word embedding model that was uh, created by some Russian grad students who knew kind of the rigors and intricacies of the language and the importance of, them, uh, of suffixes. And I showed in very in a very simple manner how the Facebook model was frankly junk and how. The, the Russian model was compatible to, uh, well, how the Russian made model was compatible to the English ones. So uh, honestly, I, uh, the message that I want to get out there is you can't train these models blindly. Not every language works like the English language and these little nuances, they, uh, they matter. So if you're going to release a bunch of new English language models as a publicity stunt, please have a native speaker of the language at least take a look at the output or take a look at the design mm -hmm. and emphasize any obvious errors that are present within the models. It's just common sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, you have to like learn to, uh, I guess, personalize, you know, the solution for, for a particular problem that, that you want to address, especially that very relevant in, in NLP when there's like, you know, hundreds of languages across the world. And, um, you know, so so what are some of the events in the NLP research community, I guess, that you're most excited about um, in 2020? Okay, so a lot of uh, NLP practitioners are familiar uh, with uh, kind of the wondrous power of uh, BERT, of the bidirectional transformers, in particular the usage of BERT for transfer learning and how BERT by just blows all other previous standard techniques like our like LSTMs and whatnot out of the water. Uh, not as many people uh, know about XLNet. Uh, they might have heard about XLNet, but there 
there's not that much attention about ExcelNet, which was released by a group of researchers at Google and Carnegie Mellon in mid uh, 2019. Uh, and ExcelNet, uh, basically, it just crushes bird. It just crushes. It, it, it blows bird out of the water to the same degree that bird mm -hmm. blows other uh, models out of the water. There's some publicly available Primer blog posts that illustrate how ExcelNet was recently adopted at Primer and how it outperform uh, its transfer learning capacities outperformed bird in so uh, so many ways. Uh, and also, uh, bird is quite limited. Uh, you can only you can only put a maximum of like 500 or so word tokens into bird at any given time which means it's really hard to apply to longer documents excelnet doesn't have those limits uh there is uh, no document length cutoff that you really need to worry about so it gives you so much power now it's not perfect uh excelnet is uh, slower and bulkier uh, than bird which can be a real issue when you use these models in production. And there have been a bunch of efforts recently to make BERT smaller and more compact by distilling it, doing uh, uh, releasing models such as Distill BERT. Uh, as far as I know, uh, no similar efforts have been successful in the ExcelNet space, but I firmly believe that by the end of 2020, we're going to find a way to make ExcelNet smaller to make it sleeker and maybe even make it even more powerful and it's going to be the de facto tool to accomplish uh, transfer learning in NLP and all the NLP labs and all the NLP uh, companies are going to be using it uh, before uh, this next year or so is through. I see, yeah, that's that's um, that's a very um, interesting prediction. I, I'll be sure to uh, to put some more resources about ExcelNet to the show notes so people have a chance to, to explore them in, in further detail based on your recommendation. Great. Um, so going back to Premiere, right? So you asked, asked the numbers of employees increase. What was the biggest hurdle of scaling the data-driven culture across the organization, uh, in your opinion? All right. Well, so uh, any, as any startup begins to grow, you need to... Uh, reorganize both your culture and your teams in a more productive manner. Uh, more people start coming in and you no longer have a single team. You have multiple modular teams working together and multiple managers across making sure that those teams are guided appropriately in an optimal manner. Uh, it's not easy to do, but it is doable. There's standard uh, organizational frameworks you can carry out, uh, such as Agile and Scrum. And techniques like Scrum work well uh, for the most part in uh, engineering cultures. Uh, they allow you to uh, basically control team output in a constant, predictable manner, uh, which is great. The problem is that Scrum doesn't transfer so well to a more data science data-driven environment. And here's why. A technique like Scrum is all about predictability. And most standard engineering problems uh, are predicated on predictability. Like you need to design a server that's a little faster than your current server. You know exactly what steps you need to carry out. You know that if you do A, B, C, and D in a timely manner, you will have your server ready, which allows you to plan organizationally how these steps will be uh, executed. Uh, in data science, 
uh, things are not so simple. Remember, the whole point is that you're dealing with open-ended problems where the solution is not immediately obvious. Mm -hmm. And if you tr you know going into the problem that you want to try techniques A, B, C, and D, and those techniques will probably fail. But the knowledge that you gain from that failure will then allow you to prioritize techniques E and F, mm -hmm. which are more likely to guarantee uh, success. So in some ways, data science is about predictable unpredictability. It's about controlled failure in the pursuit of a solution. And you need to organize your teams accordingly. And one of the best way to do that, in my opinion, is to have an experienced uh, data science leader managing uh, these smaller, more modular teams where not everybody necessarily has the experience, but everybody has the technical know-how. So you have the leader uh, breaking up the, a, a problem whose solution is not obvious into data-driven hypotheses, which are then offered up to the junior members with the expectation that yes, there's a good chance this technique might fail, but these are the learnings that we expect to extract from the failure. So it's about managed, predictably managed failures. And uh, it's, it's hard for some organizations mm -hmm. to grasp this seemingly counterintuitive concept, but it, it works. And the best data-driven culture does uh, incorporate failure and uh, unpredictability into their process, and they, they get things done. They get the solutions that are required. Essentially, what you're saying is like, you know, why, why managing software engineers is, is, is very linear, right? However, like, like the, the data center process, you know, it's, it's already inherently nonlinear. You know, you have to kind of go back to previous step in, in case you want to iterate more. So it, it requires almost like a, a probabilistic style of management, right? You have to you have, you have size certain probability of success to certain things. And, you know, as, as you execute some of these uh, solutions, you, you, you increase your chance of getting success with, with machine and data science. And it seems like, um, you know, a lot of enterprises do in that process of adopting that mindset. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, data science, first and foremost, I believe is, uh, well, it, the word science is in the name. It's a scientific process. And scientists have a way of dealing with this uncertainty, and it's called the scientific method. They have to decide which hypothesis to try and which hypothesis to ignore. And they do this in pretty much what you said, in a probabilistic way where they weigh the expected likelihood of success or failure uh, against the cost of actually trying the hypothesis. If you, you know, if the likelihood of of failure is high, but the payoff is even higher and the technique is easy to carry out, why not carry it out? On the other hand, if the technique is bulky and frankly time-consuming and the level of success obtained, uh, the, the, the level of predicted success isn't that high, then the payoff isn't, isn't worth it. And I think we need more of that thinking, sort of thinking in the, kind of like the, the corporate data science space. So, so later on, you know, the tech uh, at uh, Premier has been deployed for a variety of clients in uh, finance, government, and corporate spaces. So, can you talk more about that? Yeah. So, uh, imagine you have three very different organizations. One of them is like a large corporation, such as Walmart. Another one is a very large investment bank, uh, such as J.P. Morgan. And then another one is maybe a large uh, government agency that's central and interested in intelligence. Uh, 
these uh, organizations all are interested in all very different problems, but what do they have in common? Well, for one, they all have analysts. Analysts are, uh, you know, highly educated, well-trained human beings whose job it is to sift through lots of government reports and lots, or well, government reports in the case of the government, corporate reports in the case of Walmart, financial reports in the in the case of the investment bank, and to sift through this data and to find interesting insights that they then present to their superiors, where the superior has to make a very important decision, buy or sell a bunch of stock shares, or uh, get uh, get ready to face a potential terrorist uh, attack. So these analysts bear a lot of responsibility. And the problem is, no matter how smart and talented the analyst is, they can't sift through all the data. Even if the analyst is working 15 hours a week, uh, 15 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, they might be able to read through a thousand documents, but if uh, you're dealing with a hundred thousand documents, then they've only read one percent of the data that is out there. Also, analysts get tired. If they're reading through documents 15 hours a day, uh, they might slip up near the end of the day. They might make mistakes. Computers don't get tired. And computers can process all of that data. They might not be as intelligent as the analysts, but this is where the computers and the analysts can work together. And so Primer provides uh, software that allows the analysts to prioritize what's important and what's not. If the analyst, if there's 100 documents out there and the analyst only has time to read five of them, Primer software is going to let the analysts know, hey, these are the five most important documents and here is why you should prioritize these documents. So it's not a black box. It opens itself up to, it explains itself. And in this way, uh, analysts in, in all those spaces, a corporate government financial can find uh, the needle in the haystack that is uh, this document data and present the important insights to their superiors so significant decisions are properly made. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This one quick note, do you think more and more is, you know, um, big organization in, in government and finance, um, how, how soon do you think they're going to start um, really take advantage of, I guess, like technologies, uh, you know, from company like Premier into their day-to-day um, operation, I guess, the adoption rate of like, you know, NLP in, into more like traditional industry? They are already... Uh... Uh, they're, they're already in the process of taking advantage. Uh, one of the issues, of course, is uh, organizational uh, secrecy and bureaucracy and providing some level of uh, feedback. Each organization, I mean, most NLP techs are related, yet each organization is going to need to have the algorithm slightly tweaked to prioritize its use cases and interests and those tweaks are going to have to happen internally for the most part because uh, large investment banks and large corporations uh, they don't want to share their secret sauce and they can't uh, there's very stringent uh, safeguards in place to prevent that sort of uh, uh, sharing so 
uh, one of like the the issues that are still being resolved, being resolved successfully, but it's still nonetheless not completely solved. Is how do you uh, provide that uh, level of feedback efficiently? Also, how do you get adoption? Because uh, if you if you have an organization that expects its models to work right out of the box, and then they need to like actually spend a few weeks tweaking the data, well, are they really going to want to tweak the data? You're really going to have to sell it to them to explain to them why. Uh, putting in uh, the putting in that time and that resource is um, is beneficial. So I think uh, uh, the issue of the of adaptability is more cultural than it is algorithmic. Mm-hmm. This point, but we are seeing, like I know from experience, I'm seeing the the cultural shift. So over time, it's just going to get bigger and bigger until uh, until these NLP algorithms are. Are kind of like spreadsheets today where you can't uh, a business or a government organization cannot imagine getting work done without it great great uh, I'm, I'm excited to see that future unfolds um so so recently you left premier to become a data science health innovation fellow at the berkeley institute for data science which is a two-year program that will expand healthcare field with new ideas innovative tech and cutting-edge research why did you make this decision? Uh, so, look, it was always my uh, one of my uh, life goals was to uh, be a part of a startup that grows from nothing to a large to a noticeable level of success. And I am privileged to have gone through this process with uh, um, with Primer, helping to build it out from just uh, you know some code that was written in my Berkeley kitchen to uh, this large and successful. Uh, organization uh, but having achieved that level of success I kind of I begin uh, to kind of uh, miss my graduate school research I begin to I began to miss dealing with problems that can impact the lives of patients and clinicians like earlier in 2019 there was a, a senior VP at primer was giving us a motivational speech and he said everyone in this room is so talented that if primer ever decides to uh, cure cancer cancer better watch out and I thought to myself well if that's the case why am I not curing cancer now uh, I wanted to contribute in some way around this time I began to hear about this uh, legendary data set being existing within the UC system over 5 million uh, patient records by records I mean fully comprehensive records diagnostics uh, medical test results images doctors clinical notes this gold mine of health data that of a size that had never been made available before and that data was uh, going to be released in uh, January 2020 to kind of a select group of researchers and I wanted first crack I wanted to apply my experience in data science and in NLP. I wanted to apply that to that data set, to that problem, and you know, make make patients' lives better, make uh, the job of, of clinicians easier. And this just was not an opportunity that I could pass up. So I uh, uh, chose to leave Primer and take on this uh, health innovation fellowship. I see. And based on my research from from the website, like there's only uh... It's only five people in the fellowship, right? And then you, you, have, you guys have to um, work yeah. together to, to propose a research project. Um, is, that, is that correct? Yes. I see. It seems like you will have the next two years to really focus on, you know, a particular research direction and really, I guess, put all 100% of your mind and effort into that. So 
definitely will will have a lot of um, high probability of, of making an impact in this space. Um, and so, you know, I'm just curious, what are some of the applications of data science, machine learning, and AI in healthcare that you that you think will be adopted widely in the next few years? Uh, so, uh, what you have to understand about uh, uh, the health the healthcare space in the United States as it exists, data-driven healthcare space, is that we have the data. We have the millions upon millions of patient records, images, and whatnot, and the machine learning models, they love the data. They love to gobble it up. The more data, the better. But there is a uh, problem. That data is siloed off across a multitude of organizations, individual hospitals, pharmaceuticals, uh, you name it. Each individual organization only has a little bit of the data, not necessarily enough to uh, build a model, at the very least not enough to build a model uh, without bias. Uh, the reason for that siloing is multifold. First of all, it's to protect patient privacy. Like you as a patient don't want anybody but your doctor knowing your personal intimate information. So from that perspective, the fact that your data is so secure and solid off is a good thing. But then from the perspective of building a model that benefits multiple patients, uh, that is not so good. Uh, there's also uh, organizational motivations for keeping uh, data private. For instance, a pharmaceutical company that's working on uh, to cure a particular disease does not want to share its results with other, with other pharmaceutical companies who are its competitors. Uh, so how do you get around this data balkanization? Well, uh, in the past... Uh, a few years, uh, we've seen some amazing results in the field of uh, federated learning. Mm. And in federated learning, you can uh, using federated learning, you can train a machine learning uh, model in a distributed manner, where uh, individual siloed organizations train a submodel, which they share in such a way as to maintain uh, uh, data privacy and also uh, uh, data integrity. This is coupled with techniques such as differential privacy, where you subtly introduce noise into the data in such a way that the privacy of every single individual patient is preserved. You can't trace the model back to an individual patient. While at the same time, uh, the predictive power model is almost not, is not, is barely impacted in any way whatsoever. So. Uh, federated learning is uh, basically going to change uh, the game. You're going to see uh, you're going to see models that, for instance, predict early onset of uh, diagnosis of cancer or other difficult to diagnose diseases, such as lupus, to an accuracy not seen before. And yes, you're going to see results in like the imaging space, medical imaging space, uh, such as CAT scans and MRIs, which everybody's excited about. But you're also going to see results in the text analytics space. You're going to have an algorithm, algorithms that mine through all the notes every single doctor has ever written about you. And there are many and help uh, help. Uh, catch any tricky diseases in time and help guide you in terms of living a healthier, better lifestyle and also help doctors that are overworked uh, in the emergency room departments make sure that they don't miss any obvious like uh, grievous uh, patient diagnoses or errors. And I think it's all going to be made possible by the fact that there is a workaround uh, these fractured silo data sets and we're going to find ways to train the model on all the data 
despite these uh, privacy uh, maintaining boundaries that currently exist. Yeah, I see. Thanks a lot for for sharing some of those um, opinion and 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 resources that that I think was really very revealing about a current um, state of um, data science in healthcare. Uh, like a while back, I read a book. It's called Deep Medicine by Eric Topol. Like he talk about all this stuff, like how AI is going to be used, adopted in in hospital, and help improve some both of these, you know, both from the design point of view as well as some of the more um, organizational, operational aspect of, of, of the hospital to to allow patient to to receive better healthcare. So it seems like what you what you talk about kind of uh, reinforce that. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, what what are some of the um, companies or um, universities, academic groups that are uh, contribute a lot of innovation in terms of um, um, healthcare analytics, healthcare, healthcare AI that you um, you will pay attention to. I'm gonna bring up uh, this uh, one company that's actually investigating healthcare AI in a way that's unusual. It's a company called Oasis Labs, and it was. Uh, uh, spun out of the uh, lab of uh, Dr. Don Song. She's a professor at Berkeley, and uh, the purpose that the the company is actually a blockchain company. It basically does uh, secure machine learning on uh, the blockchain. And you think to yourself, well, what does that have to do with uh, uh, with healthcare? Well, in the context of federated learning, it has everything to do with healthcare because it allows these uh, hospitals and organizations to uh, build models uh, of their uh, off of their data in a distributed way while maintaining perfect privacy. So, uh, for instance, there is a there is a doctor over at Stanford whose name I can't quite remember collaborating with Don Song, and he is using some of her technology to basically to allow patients to to track their health, to check in, to provide uh, health-related updates in a way that's uh, that's super secure and and protects uh, patient uh, uh, privacy, and it's really cool. Uh, the other place that I want to mention, like technolo- technologically wise, in terms of uh, consumer uh, health companies like uh, Fitbit and even Apple with their Apple Watch. Uh, are really changing up the game because uh, we have sensor data that it did not have before. Apple's releasing a new Apple Watch with like an EKG, which you can monitor your heart rate, which is going to be huge. So now you have pharmaceutical companies are collaborating with uh, Fitbit. They're collaborating with Apple mm-hmm. to uh, to get to analyze these signals in a safe, secure way, and to basically be able to diagnose diseases early on to plan drug trials uh, in a in, in a way that is more uh, more impactful to the to the patient so it's less about individual startups and more about how established uh, certain established tech companies are putting out technologies which will serve as the foundational layers for the startups of the future uh, for the health startups of the future. Yeah, definitely. Like collecting data this early allow you to essentially like provide a more comprehensive, you know, report of, of that individual. So later on when they have to deal with, with like certain type of disease, they they have like a deba- the basis of the data that's um as as features, right? So so seems like it's it's a very good practice to adopt in um 
in, in, the, in both tech and healthcare space. And also techniques, as I said before, techniques like differential privacy will allow individuals to share their intimate health data while confidently knowing that uh, their privacy is maintained. And I want to emphasize that's a big part of it. And only recently have we started to develop technology that allows for that. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, so so let's move on to um, uh, to a book that you're currently writing. It's called Data Science Bookcamp. What, what is your motivation for authoring a book? And uh, who would be benefit the most from reading it? Okay, so I was motivated to write this book uh, while uh, conducting uh, interviews at Primer. So I was interviewing a lot of uh, uh, talented, hardworking people that were coming out of uh, these data science programs and these data science boot camps. And uh, the people, despite their talent and hard work, they kept bombing the interviews. And the reason why is because they had no practical real world exposure to some of these messy, uncertain data science problems that I had to deal with uh, for most of my uh, career. So they, you, they would take a boot camp and they would learn about an algorithm. This is, this is k-means. This is how do you use k-means to like cluster three distinct clusters. This is the NumPy library. This is how you use it to multiply a matrix. They would learn individual fractured cases of libraries and algorithmic techniques and how those techniques work individually. Uh, the real world is, isn't is like that. In the real world, techniques that seemingly work well 90% of the time just break down the other 10% of the time. There are seemingly intractable problems where one or two libraries of techniques won't do. You have to address the problem from multiple perspectives in order to come up with the right solutions. I was thrust into this messy world during the early stages of my data science consulting career when I would sign a contract with a company and they would tell me, look, we have no way, we have, we have no clue how to crack this problem. Have at it. And I would beat my head against the wall and then I would come up with a solution and it would be incredibly uh, satisfying to crack the the problem open. And I wanted to provide that same experience for my readers. So I created a book of, uh, started working a book of case studies that are modeled heavily on the types of uh, problems that I had to encounter during my data science consulting career. And they're messy and they're nuanced. But going through these case studies, I believe going through that messiness will uh, uh, make you a better data science data scientists. Uh, that was one of my motivations for writing a book. The other motivation was the fact that I always wanted to address how mathematics and algorithms are taught to data scientists. They're taught by mathematicians. And so you you read all the formulas and all the Greek symbols and you work out the equations, which is great. I love math. And I think programmers intrinsically have a mathematical way of thinking. However, as engineers, as data scientists, as programmers, we don't really think in math and Greek symbols. We think in code. And I've always wanted to write a book where uh, seemingly complex mathematical concepts are expressed using code, not Greek symbols. And I personally believe that when you try to build up these concepts from the ground up using code examples, you realize that the math is actually driven by straightforward, common sense, practical ideas that can only be exposed using a using that code, which was the intention that I had when writing the book. So my ideal audience is 
somebody that wants to transition to a data science career, but as an amateur when it comes to data science, they maybe they know how to code in Python and they have an innate curiosity, but that's it. And so what my book is going to provide those individuals is uh, both a uh, ground up understanding of basic data science libraries and uh, uh, mathematical examples and algorithms using concrete practical examples, but also is going to expose them to these messy real world case studies where uh, the seemingly obvious solution fails sometimes, but if you work hard enough and you think about the problem hard enough, uh, you can go beyond the messiness and you can get your solution to work. Mm, I see. Yep. Hey, thanks for um, providing the context. And I actually got the opportunity to kind of read through some of the, the first three case study in the book. You know, you you know provide examples from like you know uh, probability in winning a, a, a poker card game to like assessing online ad clicks to even tracking disease outbreaks with like NLP approach. So, um, you know, just out of curiosity, how do you um, select and, and organize this different kind of state case study um, to to best satisfy the need of the readers? Mm -hmm. So, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these case studies are inspired by the type of types of problems I actually encountered uh, during my uh, consulting and startup career. And even the first case study, which is like a sampled card game uh, case study, which is less realistic than the rest, uh, that was inspired by an actual interview question that I was given to uh, uh, that that was. Um, that I was asked by the CTO of a company where I managed to pass the interview uh, successfully. So this all comes from actual experience. So going in, I knew in advance the kind of diverse case studies I wanted to present. It was all, all a matter of prioritization. I was able to prior, prioritize these case studies based on the constraints of the books. So let me just uh, explain something. The way these case studies are structured is first you are presented with a data science problem that you need to address. After that, you are taught all the key concepts uh, required to address that problem correctly. These concepts include critical Python data science libraries and also mathematical and algorithmic techniques required to address the problem uh, properly. After that, you are encouraged to use these key concepts in order to solve the problem yourself. And then you can uh, uh, read uh, the case study solution in order to compare how uh, my solution corresponds to um, your own. Now, because of that requirement for the key uh, concept section, I was very constrained in terms of what concepts I could present uh, when, because uh, my intent was to uh, initially present all the foundational uh, data science libraries within the Python data science stacks, uh, libraries like NumPy and Mat Matplotlib had to be presented earlier on, followed by uh, libraries that build up on them, such as SciPy, then eventually uh, uh, Scikit-learn and Pandas, uh, which are more uh, more NumPy heavy. And the fact that I had to uh, start with kind of like the broader, more numerical foundations meant that I would have to uh, put kind of uh, the more probability, uh, the, the types of problems that are driven by probability and statistics 
earlier on in the book because for these types of problems, these libraries are foundational, uh, which turned out to be a good thing because as it so happens, probability and statistics are the foundations of good uh, data science. So that helped in regard to that book. And then later on, as you, you move on to uh, other techniques such as natural language processing, you can uh, build up on the foundational libraries such as NumPy using additional libraries such as uh, LTK and scikit-learn and uh, and whatnot. But that constraint really helped me organize my book in a straightforward manner. Yeah, so I'm I'm very excited to uh, see the rest of the book when it's finished. Yeah, yeah. There's much more coming in the in the next few weeks, so it's going to be exciting. Okay, uh, so Leonard, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on into the closing segment, in uh -huh. which I'm going to ask you uh, three rapid-fire questions. And you can give tactical advice and resources for, for the audience. Okay, the, great. The first question is, uh, name three people in the machine learning and AI universe whose work you really admire. Okay, by the universe, I'm going to assume that means living and dead. So the <laughs> first person I'm going to mention is Walter Pitts. He was... Uh, a homeless, self-taught teenager from a broken home, uh, living in the Chicago, in the uh, basically sleeping in the math section of the Chicago library because he didn't have nowhere else to go, who invented artificial neural networks. He uh, published the very first artificial neural network paper when he was 20 years old, recently homeless. And the we owe all of deep learning and all of modern machine learning to, to him. Uh, and the fact that he is not remembered as much as he should, given his amazing background and his amazing story, I think I think it's shameful we should uh, uh, think about Walter Pitt and what he accomplished like a whole lot more than we do. Uh, the other person I really uh, admire is Paul Werbos. He was the graduate student who in 1974 invented uh, backpropagation for neural networks. Many people think that Hinton invented backpropagation. That is not the case. Uh, Werbos did it first in the mid-70s. Uh, he was a graduate student in the economics department of Harvard who was inspired to solve the seemingly intractable problem of multi-layer neural network optimization using ideas that he found in a psychology book. And when he brought a back propagation to his thesis advisor, his thesis advisor said, this has nothing to do with economics. Take it out of your thesis. And Paul Werba said, no, this is important. And this will impact how analytics is done from now on. And, you know, he came up with this great idea. He didn't give in and he deserves a lot more credit than he's given in the machine learning space today. Uh, Finally, uh, when I want to mention Fei Fei Li. Uh, she was the professor that constructed the ImageNet dataset. And without ImageNet, we would not really see or know about the impact of deep learning as experienced today. And the reason I mention Fei uh, Fei and ImageNet is because in the data science space, we focus a lot about the, on the algorithms and the techniques. And yes, the algorithms and techniques are great. They're important. But data science is all about the data. Without intelligently constructed data sets, uh, all these techniques are worthless. And it's she really pushed the field forward. Uh, she's doing some great research in Stanford today in terms of detecting cultural uh, biases in machine learning training sets. And like I expect there to be like really great work coming out of her lab in the future. Second question is, um, name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset. And okay, 
so you probably heard this answer before, but I'm going to go with Nate Silver's The Signal and The Noise. Mm -hmm. uh, such an such an impactful book uh, because it really it forces you to grasp the messiness and the uncertainty of data-driven predictions uh, today. I think the, uh, one of the reasons this book is so invaluable for budding data scientists is because it teaches you uh, the counterintuitive notion that you have to doubt yourself. As a data scientist, you need to doubt yourself. And only by doubting yourself will you see the holes, the blank spaces in your thinking that allows allow errors to go through. And by doubting yourself, you will see what others refuse to see. And you will be a data, better data scientist for it. And then the last question um, is that, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter, what would you tweet about? So I would uh, paraphrase, in my tweet, I would paraphrase uh, the Einstein quote, keep the solution as simple as possible, but not any simpler. And my interpretation of that quote is inverse, by which I mean, if the problem you're trying to tackle can be solved using logistic regression, you don't need a fancy multi-layered neural network. Uh, the simplest solution will do. What the mark the marks of a great data scientist, I think, isn't whether or not they constantly use fancy, esoteric, uh, really complicated, up to date uh, machine learning models. No, it's their ability to distinguish between when a fancy model is required and when a simple solution will do. And honestly, sometimes. You don't need the hundred-layer multi-layered model. A simple if-then statement can crack the problem wide open, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. You should be proud of the fact that you can discover simple solutions where others take uh, over an overly complex uh, path in order to uh, get the results that they they need to get. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, very reassuring to hear, given the vast amount of knowledge and, and the hive that that you know people uh, who want to enter the field got to hear. Um, and yeah, I think that's a great way to end our conversation. I really enjoy our, our, our chat today, you know, learning about your, your background in, in bioinformatics, you know, your experience um, doing different consultancy projects for a variety of startups, your time at Premier AI, um, some of the um, prediction for NLP and um, healthcare and that uh, community, and you know, as well as some of the stuff that you've been working on for your book. And I hope that the listeners can um, take away a lot of things from our conversation and um, you know, can reach out to you later on if they have any more questions. Great. Thank you so much, James. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now. 